read Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 10, on page 707 in your pew Bible. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our Lord. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with compass, uh, recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty springs, a ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Truly, the language of the prophet Isaiah is some of the most beautiful in the whole Bible, and certainly the Old Testament. Well, I want to begin by saying Happy New Year. Thank you. Now, how many of you think Pastor Dan's lost it again? Happy New Year, because the Advent, first Sunday of Advent is, in fact, the first Sunday of the Christian year. Now, the Christian year is defined by the liturgical calendar, the church calendar, Christian calendar. It goes by a few different nicknames. But this is the calendar established among Christians many, 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 many years ago. And it is basically how we define certain events, like when Easter falls. And it, it, remar- it marks for us the certain feast days and holy days of the church. And this liturgical calendar is pretty universal Um, Some churches observe it in more depth than others, but we all follow roughly the same liturgical calendar. And in many churches, it even defines the readings that we take uh, in each of our Sunday services. And it is a part of the United Methodist tradition for churches to follow the liturgical calendar of readings or not. And and, uh, I have at times referred to it in my preaching But for now, we're in a series, so we will occasionally use some of the same readings that are scheduled. But that's the liturgical year that begins with this Sunday, so Happy New Year. Now, this season, Advent, gets its name from a Latin word, Adventus, which comes from a Greek word called uh, parousia. Now, that's very interesting because if you're a prophecy 
enthusiast, then you know what parousia means because parousia is a word that refers to the second coming of Christ. So whether we know it or not, when we're saying Advent, we're really saying we're looking for the second coming of Christ. So the word Advent, is, as it has been interpreted then over the years, is really our reminder that because God promised the coming of the Messiah and the Deliverer once, and then it happened, we can be sure that the same promises for his return will be fulfilled. And so we look at this season of Advent each year as an opportunity to remind ourselves that Christ is coming again. But it has been more openly interpreted in our, in our traditional experiences to be a season to recall the first coming of Jesus in the flesh in Bethlehem, but also it's a reminder to us that Jesus comes every day into our hearts if we'll let him. And so really every morning you should pray an Advent prayer. It might just be a simple, dear Lord, come into my heart today. Jesus, be who I am to become each day. And if you're like me, sometimes your early morning prayer with all those creaks and cracks and pains is, oh God. Jesus, help me just to get out of this bed because it hurts. And oh, by the way, transform my heart. Make me your servant this day. And he says, you know, I, I'm a little familiar with pain. So uh, I get it. I, uh, I worship a Jesus who understands me. And I think he's going to prove himself to be someone who understands you very well, too. But I digress. So this season offers us an opportunity to share in a very ancient longing for the Messiah or the Deliverer. And what does he deliver us from? He delivers us from, from those things that oppress us. There are two things that I've noticed in Scripture that God is really, really bent on defeating. And one of them, of course, the most significant is sin. But the other one would be oppression. Because there's no more vicious, more wicked expression of sin than oppression. And sin being basically about pride, when a person or institution becomes so convinced of their particular superiority over others, then they oppress. And God doesn't like oppression. And so the passage we read today is an expression to us of God's intention to deliver the, the oppressed from their oppression. But it also is an Old Testament statement of faith in something that we are now living and this is what I want to talk about primarily with you today. Even as we are trying to understand and really know the person of Jesus in a better way, we take a moment to understand who we are in relationship to Jesus. Because to really know Jesus, we have to know who we are in our relationship with Jesus. We are the church with a capital C. We're living in what has been termed the church age. Now, the church age is this period that basically started at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit upon all the people. I would argue, just because I'm a nitpicker, that the church age really started with the conception of Jesus and the first Christian is Mary. Tune in in a week or so for the continuing saga because we're going to talk about that first Christian Mary, the mother of Jesus. But for now, we'll agree that the church age began when all the people 
who committed themselves to Christ, who followed Jesus as their Savior and Lord, were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was the beginning of a worldwide universal movement of the Holy Spirit. And this we call the church age. It is an age that will end with what we commonly refer to as the rapture. And there's a lot of controversy, not a lot, but there's some controversy about what the rapture is and, and all of that. And we can talk about that one day soon, I promise. But for now, understand that there is a period that has finite limits of beginning and end we call the church age. It will come to a close. And when it does, the church will no longer be a force in the universe and the world uh, as it is to this day. And we kind of take that for granted, really. And that's why we want to take a moment to consider this. We're living in an era that was prophesied by Daniel in chapter 9, called the 69th week or the week, the, the last week of, of the seven weeks that leads to the end of the church age and the coming of the Lord Jesus. And Daniel prophesied that by accurately predicting exactly when the Messiah would walk into the temple and present himself as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so we know that these practical implications of prophecy are easily witnessed in the past, so we can have a lot of confidence that those that have yet to be fulfilled will be easily witnessed in the present and the future. You can also refer to the Apostle Paul's writings in the book of Thessalonians if you're interested in knowing more about the time he describes as the end of the church age. Right now, the word church is a word that comes from Greek meaning, a uh, Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia means church or the body. Uh, interestingly enough, the Hebrew word is synagogue. And so synagogue is a word that means the gathering and the church is a word that refers from the Greek ekklesia and becomes church. It means that we are the gathering of the people of the way. You heard that mention of the way when you were listening to the reading from Isaiah. There is a way of life, a way of being that is universal. And we refer to it as the church with a capital C, meaning the church universal. Small C church means this building. Capital C church means the body of the way, the people of the way. So this church age then encompasses a time like no other when God's grace is manifest. Now, what that means is, is that we live in a period where all you have to do to receive forgiveness from God is to ask. At no other time in history has it been that easy to receive God's grace. Before, you had to do th certain things. You, you were only given the Holy Spirit if God had a particular plan for you. Take, for example, some of the people that you read about in the Old Testament. The Spirit came upon them so that they could do certain things that God intended them to do. And so they were gifted by the Spirit and enabled by the Spirit in such a way that they could accomplish God's plan for that time. And in the same way, uh, God would take that same grace and apply it to the people as long as they met certain expectations, as long as they fulfilled certain requirements that God had. We live in an era where all you have to do to receive God's grace and to be empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit, to even be transformed by the Holy Spirit, is to ask. 
This is the unique nature of the age of the church. And if you follow our Revelation Bible study online, you'll find that there comes a point in history, in the future history, when there won't be that ready availability and it'll be as it was once before, something that happens for a particular purpose and is given to a particular people who meet particular criteria. So you've got a great opportunity now and I, I encourage you to take advantage of it. Act now, supplies are unlimited. That's the problem, isn't it? Everywhere else you shop during this Advent season, people are gonna tell you, act now, supplies are limited. And so you gotta beat that other person to the parking spot. You gotta get into the store before it's all gone because after all, for the name of Jesus and the love of your family, you gotta shove that other guy out of the way and get that toy. I'm sorry, that was a little personal commentary. <laughs> it's, always a, it's always struck me as ironic that our season creates that sort of spirit in people. This season, I mean. But the truth is, is you have only to ask for God's grace. And no one receives grace who doesn't understand their guilt. And so it's really a very straightforward proposition. Recognize that you're a sinner fallen from grace. One who cannot experience the fullness of God's presence in your life unless you're willing to accept that your sin, even the most subtle part of your sin, separates you from God, even makes it difficult for God to see you clearly. Yet Jesus covers that, and therefore by accepting that Jesus has made the way of repentance possible so that your sin forgiven gives you an abundant supply of God's grace. Grace is unmerited favor, plain and simple. And it comes with the Holy Spirit so that your repentance not only leads you away from sin, but it leads you into a transformative process of renewal we call sanctification. Now, we look for the coming of our Lord. People did back in the day. That's what Isaiah was writing about. He was looking for the coming of the Messiah. But the problem so many uh, of these kinds of anticipation leave is that we're always thinking in more limited terms. Let me explain what I mean by that. More often than not, when we pray for deliverance, we're looking for deliverance from an immediate problem, aren't we? More often than not, when we're asking God to relieve our suffering, we're asking for relief for an immediate suffering, a particular state of being that exists. That's a very normal human thing to do, and the Bible is full of stories of that. The people who were oppressed by Egypt prayed for a deliverer to get them out of this oppression. People who were oppressed by their enemies during Israel's great uh, glory and then fall, well, they were praying for restoration of what they once had. I joked about this last week, but you know, there are people I've met, not so much lately, but a few years ago, I've frequently met people who were praying that the church would be like it was back in 1953. And in every case, we're looking for a limited response to a limited situation, but that's not God's nature. There's nothing limited about God, is there? And so when we pray for God's deliverance, we have to think in much more universal terms. We can't even say global, we have to think universally. And maybe one way I could put this to you is, is when you have a headache and you pray for an aspirin, you're really not praying for the right thing because that'll certainly relieve your suffering for a moment, but it doesn't get to the root cause of your suffering. 
you know, I've never heard in my life of an aspirin deficiency. So as far as I know, nobody ever got to the root of the problem of a headache by just taking an aspirin or an ibuprofen. And so what you pray for then when you ask for universal deliverance is you pray that God's kingdom will come. Does that sound familiar? When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, it sounds like we're talking about something on a fairly limited scope, but what we're really inviting God to do is something that is universal. And therefore, we have to accept the fact that we may not see the kind of deliverance that we want, but if we look at those words from Isaiah and thoughtfully read them, we understand that God has a plan that is universal. Therefore, the Messiah is coming to respond to the root cause of all the evil in the world and all the oppression in the world, and it is sin. And it begins with the sin of one who was called Lucifer. You can read about him in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. But that one would become known as Satan, which is a much more familiar term. And then we would look at the sin of Adam and realize that because of sin, the world is kind of in a semi-fallen state now because we're in this church age. We have the presence of sin, and yet those of us who have been born again in the Holy Spirit are sort of removed from it. We're no longer citizens in this sin-filled world anymore. We're citizens of heaven or the kingdom of God who are simply away from home right now. It's a whole different attitude. So... What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the Messiah to defeat the source of evil. And that we have seen as Jesus the Lord was born and then lived and resisted evil, resisted sin, and then by his perfect submission to the Father, his sacrifice becomes the source of evil's defeat and our release from sin. He becomes the universal solution to the universal problem. This is why we sing, come thou long expected Jesus. Because the wise ones saw him as God's answer to a universal problem. And it didn't surprise them then if they did not witness particular deliverance from a particular form of oppression because they understood that this was a broader thing than that. So this leads me to the question that has to be asked, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Those who awaited for Advent in the first time around were looking for many different things. In fact, even in Jesus's ministry years, there were people who were confused about what he was there to do. And there was a great deal of, of conflict around him, even among his followers, because there were so many different reasons they expected him to do certain things. And yet he knew the master plan as the master himself. So when we pray for deliverance, are we willing to, relieve, uh, to accept relief from a universal problem, or are we really dealing with our feelings? This is where I'm gonna step on some toes. It's okay though, you'll live. I survived when I was interpreting this for my own benefit. The problem with human interpretation of God's plan is, is that it's based on our felt needs. It's based on our feelings. 
Feelings are very unreliable. Feelings lead us to do some of the dumbest things we'll ever do in our lives, and sometimes feelings can be entirely inappropriate because we haven't accurately interpreted facts. And so one of my goals as a Bible reader and a teacher of the Bible is to help you understand the facts, to understand that there is a great deal of truth in the Bible that is easily understood as universal truth. You just have to read it and you have to have the help of the Holy Spirit to recognize it. And you realize then that sometimes our feelings get in the way of our understanding of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because sometimes our feelings make Jesus someone who takes away our pain. Our feelings makes Jesus someone who we can wish upon when we have a particular want or desire. Our feelings can make us look for relief from an administration we don't approve of or a uh, oppressive uh, government in some foreign land where there's literally a dictatorship or something. I mean, you know, we can always use our feelings and it doesn't mean feelings are completely unjustified. It just means that they, they have to be checked against reality. Feelings have to be checked against truth. And critical thinking is a vital part. It's why I'm a Wesleyan in, in this most particular way. If you ask me why I continue with the United Methodist tradition, my main answer is, is because I like Wesley's complete devotion to holiness of heart and mind. Because the heart talks about feelings and the mind talks about facts. And I like to mix those in a way that makes my feelings subject to reality in a way that would help me to be a little more practical in my application of biblical truth. It's a goal and I haven't entirely achieved it, but I'm going to keep working at it. And I hope you will too. So the question of what you're waiting for really needs to be informed by the fundamental principles of the Bible. This is a truth that's really come to rest in my heart here in the last few weeks, that the Bible basically tells the story of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. And they are real cities in, in some historical sense, but they're also metaphorical cities. Jerusalem is a city dedicated to worshiping God. And Babylon is a city devoted to worshiping self. And if you want to understand how to interpret biblical prophecy and to look at the second coming of Christ and look at the deliverance that people sought from a Messiah, you have to understand that it depends on whether you're in Babylon or whether you're in Jerusalem. Because the Babylonian way of looking at things, Babel means those who fight God. And Israel means the people of God. People who are the people of God look for God's will to be done, look to glorify God, trust in God's authority over all things. The people of Babel, the people who fight God, are always looking for their self-fulfillment, always looking at self-interest. So which camp are you in? Now listen, we all fall one way or the other stronger at some times than others. But when you pray for Christ to come again, pray like the Israel people, the people of God. Then you'll understand that you may not see immediate relief from your oppression, but you will see God's universal deliverance from the universal problem. And you'll think eternally because once you've been born again of the Holy Spirit, you've become eternal. 
Therefore, accepting Christ as your Savior and the one who accepts your repentance on behalf of God and therefore releases God's grace to you so that you can know forgiveness also invites you then to eternal life. And it starts right then. It's not about what happens after you die. It's what happens right now and extends well beyond the grave. So as we seek a richer understanding of our Lord Jesus, it's vital then to consider who we expect to meet and who we are in him. Are we the church, the people who are devoted to God? Or are we like Babel or Babylon? Let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you and I praise you this day for your glory for your love, and most of all, for your grace. Let your grace flow now, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table to see how it is the statement of your intention to release the captive, to set free those who are oppressed by sin and death. Let it be for us a chance to renew our commitment to you or to accept a new and glorious grace and forgiveness from you for the first time, we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.